Hey, good evening, America. Coming to you live uh, from our studio here in North Minneapolis. Uh, this is the weekly podcast, The Bright Lights. Lights. Uh, I'm your host, Lacey Johnson. And each week we take a look at uh, various achievers and people who have accomplished a lot in their field. Uh, we ex uh, introduce them to our audience. We share information about how uh, they were able to achieve and share their light, share their light with you, the audience. And this evening, we got uh, someone in a field that's near and dear to me, the legal field. We got a, we got a lawyer here, uh, Miss Lynn uh, Thorson, Torkerson, I'm sorry, Torkerson. And uh, Lynn is an attorney here locally, a, a criminal defense attorney. We're going to get into some issues that a lot of you care about and especially the criminal uh, justice system. And we'll talk about that a little bit and her experiences there and how uh, all the good work she's doing there. Uh, before we get started, I normally start off with a little personal story about my week and uh, maybe deal with an issue or so myself. Uh, when I look back over the past week, probably the highlight was a softball tournament, my little niece, uh, was on the softball team, the Apple Valley Eagles, had a chance to go uh, see her play over the weekend. They finished second, but she did a great job. And just family stuff is always uh, a highlight uh, 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 of the week. And so we did that. And I took my grandson uh, to the movies, and me and my wife, Betty, we took him to the movies, and we had a good time, had some popcorn and stuff like that. So it was a memorable type of family, personal things that we did this week. Uh, we went to see Space Jam. Uh, I wish I went to see, what's the movie with the baby? Uh, baby Boss. That's just one uh, I really wanted to take him to see, but we'll see that the next time. So those are the two little highlights of my week. It's always uh, family-related because uh, when everything is said and done, uh, that's what's important. I always remember uh, Jack Onassis Kennedy saying that uh, if you fail uh, as a parent, nothing else matters. And so I'm always pushing that. And, you know, I'm always pushing, uh, get to the root cause of a lot of issues uh, in a lot of these uh, challenged communities. Uh, my prescription to get to the root cause is, of course, economic development and financial wherewithal, putting money in people's pocket, let them take their families out to dinner for it, uh, send the kids to college, no stress and strain, paying the mortgage or rent or whatever. So that's that's my goal and make it a generational thing where it's passed on to the next generation. Quality education, uh, family, close-knit family. I think family is the fundamental unit of any civilization, strong families. And I'm a man of faith and uh, the type of discipline and knowledge and strength uh, that brings to you in dealing with this uh, challenging world that we live in. Uh, if I had to talk about one issue that's related to our guests before we go on air today with our guests, it would be this whole issues of uh, uh, police reform and defunding the police. And as many of you know, uh, here in Minneapolis, the ground, uh, I guess, ground floor, uh, center uh, of all the uh, criminal justice reform and social justice things is Minneapolis. Uh, they took some votes in the city council on defunding the police. They're arguing over specific language and whether there's an explanation on the ballot for the first time in history and all that's been going back and forth. And I guess the point I will make on that and we'll get started is that, look, the people behind this whole defund the police effort. They are chess players. They are strategists. And if you're going to come up against them and defeat them, I think you're going to have to be chess players and strategists also. And what am I saying? Look, a lot of us uh, are feeling pretty good that we are holding up this whole defund the police effort. Uh, some of us perhaps even think we're winning. But let me point out something to you, people. Look, even if we stop the defund the police effort, they have already, in many ways, won. And if you think about it, if 
even if you don't pass defund the police, if no one wants to be a police, you still win. If crime is running rap rampant, they still win. If police are afraid or concerned of pulling over and enforcing the law with certain people, and therefore they're letting them go. And look, I don't know how it is in the rest of the metropolitan area and rest of the cities across this country. All I know is that when I stop at a red light or a stop sign here, I have to look around and make sure there's not 10 cars running through there passing me up. Uh, all I know is that there's a lot of shooting going on and we got babies and things being shot and killed. And uh, I don't see an end to it. So I guess, you know, I summarize it and look, we need to understand just stopping the, the defund effort that these people still can win. And what my suggestion to most people are who uh, are on the side of not defunding the police, we need to be putting strategies in place right now to stop the exodus of the police, to make sure we make it an attractive enough job that police would want, people would want to become police. And somehow, because uh, if you're a policeman, if you do the wrong thing, get caught on camera, you can end up in prison for 10 to 20 years. So we got to start doing some things right now to fix that. And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind is a program like they have for veterans. Uh, where we provide college education, we provide mortgages and things like that for uh, police people. And I hope I haven't been saying policemen because I'm going to get some uh, direct mail on that one. <laughs> Law enforcement officers. <laughs> uh, we need to be doing some uh, incentive packages right now uh, to fix that situation. We need to be doing it in parallel while we're trying to stop the defunding effort. So that's all I have to say on that. And now it's time to bring on Ms. Lynn Torkerson. Uh, good evening, Lynn. Uh, welcome to Bright Lights. And for those of you, hold on a second, Lynn. For those of you who want to support this podcast, uh, you can go out to LaceyJohnson.com and you can see all kinds of ways you can support the podcast. And oh, by the way, we're doing some other things to bring companies and jobs and things like that into these inner cities, high paying jobs. And you can see some, uh, a way you can support that also. Okay. So sorry about that little, uh, side talk there, Lynn. Welcome, Lynn. How are you doing this evening? Thank you. Um, nice to see you, Mr. Johnson. And thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Okay. And okay, Lynn, I'm going to make a deal with you. I will call you Lynn and you will call me Lacey. How about that? Sounds good, Lacey. Thank okay, you. thank you. Okay, so Lynn, tell me about uh, who you are, where you're from, where you were born and raised, a little of your family life growing up, and uh, some of your childhood influences that uh, may have predicted that you you would end up in the legal field. <clears throat> well, I uh, I was... Uh, originally born in St. Louis Park. My dad was a salesman, so we traveled, moved around the country for several years. And then um, my mom and dad moved us back to Minnetonka in the 60s. And back then, it was before Lindbergh High School was built and before Ridgedale was there, and it was just a bunch of fields. And um, so it was went to school out there. Um, you know, I'm very grateful for, um, to my mom and dad for, um, picking that area to have their kids grow up in. <clears throat> um, I think it was looking back. Um, I think one of the hugest, biggest benefits is that there was just no limitations essentially placed on our minds with regard to our futures. It was just pretty much, you know, people just thought about, well, what do you want to do? And that's probably what they pursued. And um, so I, you know, I grew up out there and, but I moved to Minneapolis proper for about the past 40 years. So maybe I've been converted to a city mouse. I don't know. Um, one of the most 
Um, I'd have to say the most influential person on my life was uh, I had a gymnastic coach, uh, John Tobler. He was an Olympic caliber gymnast and uh, high diver. He was the, if you remember, wide world of sports. Oh, yes. Um, the, at the beginning, the the man jumping, doing the dive off the cliff in Acapulco. I do remember. I was fortunate. He was my gymnastic coach. And um, he was very much of a, a teacher of if you work hard enough and set your minds to things that you can accomplish anything, anything, you know, nothing is impossible. And um, we would have, you know, he did, we did work out about 10 hours a day and he had us run five miles a day. And, um, and then every day we'd have um, a time where we would, um, have like positive quote time. He had positive quotes all over the, the walls. And he really did, I think, instill in us our um, kind of the belief that if you work hard and put your minds to things that you can accomplish anything. Yeah. Well, so. you were uh, raised with some of the same philosophies uh, that I was. And uh, I've always felt that way. And I'll keep repeating it. I've always felt I could do anything I wanted to do if I was willing to make the sacrifice and make the proper choices and things like that for us. So we really appreciate that. Uh, we, our audience should know that uh, you majored in political science and psychology at the University of Minnesota, and you graduated from the Will Mitchell College of Law. And right now you have your own, I call it legal firm or business. Uh, it's called... Torkerson Criminal Defense, is that correct? Yes, sir. And it's in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis? Yes, sir. Okay. So tell me, explain to me a little bit, and, and this is the first time I've even thought of this question. Just give me a just a high-level view of the business of law. Uh, I know there's, you know, there's time when you have partnerships and there's time when you're doing it yourself, uh, but how do uh, lawyers uh found a profitable successful law firm uh lynn tell us our audience how we would go about doing that and what gave you the courage because it does take courage to go out and do it ah uh, yeah that's a good question you know i guess my you know i founded my own practice i guess now it's been about 26 years ago I, I think I think just diligence and hard work and um, I think treating people fairly um, you know I, I you know and, and then there's the whole you know kind of you know living the right way you know I think all contributes to success um, I think it's multifactored but yeah, I just kind of one day just opened my own practice. I, um, at the time, was fortunate enough to be part of the misdemeanor defense panel of the Hennepin County Bar Association at the time. And um, so started getting business that way. And, um, you know, I guess there's, you know, there's advertising. Typically, lawyers are, are not known to be good, good business people. And I th in, in criminal defense, most of the firms are solo practitioners. Um, I never have fully understood that. I've, I think part of it is that they, a lot of law firms don't want our clientele in their lobbies. <laughs> so <laughs> most um, criminal defense attorneys are solos. But um, I think... I truly think, you know, the Bible says, you know, the hand of the diligent maketh rich. And if you slumber, you know, poverty is going to come on you and things like that. And, and I think, you know, even knowing, I think people who have their own business, you know, realize the value of a dollar or three dollars. Um, people think it's insignificant, but every, everything adds up. But I think the bottom line is, you know, you got to get up and you got to go to work every day, work, you know, at least 40 hours, you know, maybe always go above and beyond the call. Um, and I think if you do that, 
it's just kind of, I think, a spiritual law that you're going to make a living. You know, some people might make an average living. Some people might make a tremendous amount. But, you know, if, if you're working every day, you know, treating people, you know, doing a good job, going above the call, treating people fairly, you're going, you're going to make it. Right, right. So it's amazing how often already in previous podcasts, the word work, work comes up and you know that old saying that the only place where success come before work is in the dictionary and I'm, I'm a big believer in that and also you know uh i i explain to people uh i'm not into focusing on obstacles and whether things are fair or not and you know a lot of that has to do with the people that raised me and i just remember a uh, brief uh, conversation encounter I had with my dad over work. And uh, when I was growing up, you know, that used to be this saying, uh, uh, if you're black, you got to work twice as hard as, as white people to get ahead. And I just mentioned that to my dad one day when we were on break from, from work. And my dad, he just, without hardly even looking up, he said, look, son, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So what's the problem? And I never forgot that. And I tell everybody uh, from there on in, I'm like, okay, cool. Let's just go out and do it. And uh, that's my uh, feeling right now. So now the other thing, Lance, tell us about the type of clients you serve and who's your typical client, if there's such a thing. Uh, who are your clientele? Yeah, that can that can be answered in a couple different ways. Um, you know, I mean, of course being being doing criminal defense i've worked with every type of person you know a person can imagine you know every every race every religion every walk of life and um but i usually kind of there's kind of different categories and that a lot of people don't understand in criminal defense and i'd say like one category or kind of the people you see walking around in the skyways I see four different kind of levels and they did something stupid. They got caught, they got a DWI or they got in a fight with their spouse. And, and, you know, those types of cases from my perspective were usually trying to preserve their job and their future. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes, you know, some sorts of convictions can be quite harmful to people's futures. And then kind of the next category you know, some people just have a hard time dealing with life and they tend to, and that usually then leads to use, excessive use of alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. And then, and that gets people in trouble. And um, so then you usually have to kind of deal with their issues along those lines. And then there's kind of the next category is, um, they're just kind of people who are always doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. They're not a great threat, but they're always just on the border of going to prison. You know, they're in the workhouse a lot. And um, and then the last category is, you know, kind of the, you know, kind of the dangerous um, conduct or, you know, kind of the people generally abhor. And then they're usually looking at, you know, pretty long prison sentences. Right. So um, that's kind you know, and then I've, you know, what my job typically is, um, you know, I represent people's constitutional rights, which are very important and it distinguishes us from the former Soviet Union or China mm -hmm. or Saudi Arabia, something like that. You know, the, <clears throat> the right to a fair trial, the right to a public trial, um, due process of law. And these are, and you know, and a right to trial by jury. Juries are absolutely indispensable. And um, so, you know, my job is typically protecting people's rights, you know, and, um, and seeking mercy on behalf of people or, you know, and um, it's usually not a question of did they do it or didn't they do it? It's what's going to happen to their life now. And um, and I, you know, I, I don't think criminal defense attorneys tell their clients like what you did was right or good job. Mm -hmm. um, but we do, you know, I think kind of humanize 
the experience to judges and things like that. Okay, so, uh, you know, you probably, with me, you remember Robert Rules of Order. Uh, and where I'm going with this, Lynn, is that there's something called point of personal privilege, which I'm going to take right now to just interject something. You don't even have to reply to this, but lawyers are so expensive. Man. <laughs> In fact, I, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but the two areas where I, I just look at the cost and I'm saying, look, uh, something's wrong here is legal fees and believe it or not, college tuition. It's like, I'm like, come on, folks. And we aren't going to get into it today, but I was teasing my lawyer, one of my lawyers, <laughs> because they're all expensive. I'm like, what do you guys do? Go to conference and talk about, do y'all have sessions on how to squeeze the most dollars out of a client and how to get them to talk on the phone and so you can bill them? And you don't even have to uh, answer that. I just want to interject uh, uh, that for a moment, and we maybe come back and talk about that later on another show. Uh, you mentioned the Bill of Rights. I know you're a big proponent of the Bill of Rights, and most people don't understand, the because they stopped teaching civics and stuff like that, that everybody uh, deserves the best defense, and everybody deserves someone like you in their fighting to make sure their constitutional rights are not uh, violated. Now, a lot of the people in the public think if you're a bad person, then it takes a bad lawyer to represent you, uh, a lawyer without any, any scruples, but uh, we know that's not true. Now, however, and this is one of those off the person off the street uh, kind of question, and I don't have to tell you not to reveal anything that uh, shouldn't be revealed, but have you ever had a case where you defended someone that you thought was just, they were guilty and you didn't like them yourself, but you had a job to do? Yes, of course. Okay, 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 good, good. Uh, and do you remember the type of case it may have been? Can you give an example of a case that it might have been without uh, revealing too much? And I know there's lawyer-client uh, privileges too, so. I, you know, I just don't think that's... I a good idea. Yeah, yeah, and I understand that. Okay, so the Bill of Rights, uh, and we have to have that. I know among the Bill of Rights is the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. I hear you're a big proponent of that. And explain that and tell me why you're such a big proponent of the Second Amendment. Second Amendment? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I started working on uh, kind of Second Amendment cases probably about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's not really something I sought out and but I've done probably just years of research on the Second Amendment, and I think the most influential person in that area has to be Justice Scalia, um, formerly of the U.S. Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and his case um, that he wrote the opinion on. It's uh, essentially Heller is the abbreviated um, version, H E L L E R, mm -hmm. but. What Justice Scalia wrote is that there's three primary reasons for the Second Amendment. The first being uh, so that we have the ability to exercise self-defense, defense of family, property, things like that. Second, he pointed out, is so that we have men armed on the ground in the event of an attack against the United States mainland so that we can aid the military, which very interestingly, therefore means that the American citizenry is actually the militia. Mm -hmm. And um, and then thirdly, um, he stated the third reason is so that we have the ability to defend ourselves against our government, which also deters governmental tyranny. Or, and when you first read, you know, when I first read these things and when you first tell people, you know, this, you know, it seems quite radical, like, whoa, mm -hmm. you know, defend yourself against the government, you know, some crazy person out in the woods or, you know, but it's the history actually shows that every time a citizenry has been disarmed and rendered helpless, that it's been followed, not every time, but 
often mm -hmm. um, they've been slaughtered by their own governments. And this is millions and millions and millions of people. And the Second Amendment is actually a very uniquely American right. Many other countries don't have, have this right. And um, I think it actually does serve a deterrent purpose um, to keep the government in check, um, particularly what's, what's been going on with things lately, um, with suits being brought against um, business owners for opening their doors. Um, I, you know, I, in the back of my mind, you know, what would be happening if we didn't have the Bill of Rights and the, and our government thought you shouldn't be working and we're going to shut you down. We're going to fine you. And, you know, so in actuality, it's, it's a very important um, right to have. It's in very interestingly also in my research is back around the time that the second amendment was promulgated um, they had laws on the books requiring um, citizens, or I guess this is pre-country, pre but um, requiring residents to have firearms and a minimum amount, minimum amount of ammunition. And if they did not, they were actually fined. And they were required to bring firearms to public meetings and to church and things like that. Okay, so, uh, Lynn, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and everything the framers of the Constitution uh, put in place with the federal government in mind, uh, and, and just overall personal liberties being citizen of this country. Where I'm getting to is this. There are a lot of people on the other side of that issue would make the, an argument something such as well, how are you going to defend yourself against the government? They got nuclear weapons. They got tanks. They got uh, fighter jets. They got all of that. Are you crazy? That's that's that doesn't make any sense. Now, in your answer, I do know that there are people who've taken that in consideration. That's a legal principle called composite. You're going to tell me what it is. Whether you can't use the military uh, against you, you, American citizens, so. How do you respond to people who say, uh, in this day and age, this whole argument about defending yourself against the federal government is basically nonsense, and they do look at it that way. So how do, what, what is your comeback to uh, that type of an argument? Thank you. Well, that has been decided by the U.S. Supreme Court by Justice Scalia. And it's been declared that one of the purposes of the Second Amendment is so that we can and are able to defend ourselves against the, the you know, our government, should, you know, governmental tyranny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and that does address directly the issue because there is this debate, well, what type of weapon are we entitled to have under the Second Amendment? And if you apply that analysis, that means that we have to have um, firearms equivalent to our government if we're going to be able to de defend ourselves against governmental tyranny. I mean, on a practical level, are we going to have nuclear, you know, weapons and tanks mm -hmm. and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Doesn't look that way. But it certainly does, you know, show that, you know, we should you know, we should have machine guns and, you know, whatever, you know, AR-15s or whatever. And um, so I guess that's not my opinion. That's the analysis under the U.S. Supreme Court, okay. black letter law. Yep. Well, I, I've said this to people before. Uh, I, I grew up around guns and uh, everybody had guns. They hunted and everything. But, uh, you know, we didn't kill each other. Right. Uh, with the guns. I, I'm not saying there was never any, but for the most part, we had guns and we were safe and there was not a lot, not, uh, a lot of killings and things like that. And once again, I think that's where our faith came in. And I'll just keep it simple. Uh, 
we respected the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. It didn't matter how many guns was out there and things like that. And of course, according to the way you were raised, you wouldn't think about that type of stuff anyway. You had the right perspective on it. But that's a whole new uh, discussion also on the Second Amendment. We could talk about that one for a while, too. But let's talk a little bit, move on to uh, another subject that's uh, near and dear to my heart, criminal justice reform. Now, before you get into that, I think I got some very good practical ideas to reform the criminal justice system. <laughs> we'll talk about them here shortly. Uh, but I, uh, I had a chance to have dinner, uh, I don't know, about five or six years ago with a local attorney who told me he was uh, the head of the National Organization of Criminal Defense Attorneys. And I was surprised when that whole subject of reform came up and he basically said, hey, look, the current system is good the way it is. And of course, I'm always disappointed uh, when people within the current system make that argument, because like I said, I can see a lot of ways you can improve it, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, what do you see as some of the issues with the current criminal justice system, Lynn, if any, and what do you see as some of the solutions? You know, I've been doing... I started doing criminal defense in 19, 1988 mm -hmm. and as a law clerk in law school. So I guess, you know, I have a lot of experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Overall, my impression, quite honestly, is that the courts do, do a pretty good job of dispensing justice and mercy. And I think they need both and they do dispense both. I do think that, which is, so I'm kind of echoing what your friend said, I'm sorry. That's okay, but, I love it. I mean, there are, I mean- I'm gonna challenge you of course, but go yeah, ahead. Uh -huh. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, there's there's always the, the cases that just end up terribly, you know, but the, I mean, the the hundreds of thousands or millions of cases that go through the courts every day, generally I think come out pretty close to where they should. Um, I, I do think, you know, I mean, it, it does make a difference. I think if you're represented by private counsel versus public defenders, and I'd say most public defenders are excellent lawyers. The problem is, given their workload, they probably have an average of like three minutes per case, felonies, you know, whatever type of case it is, you know, there, so there's literally, it's not humanly possible to do their workload. It's just not possible. So I don't know what happens in those cases because I'm not privy to that. And I'm sure they deal with hundreds of thousands and millions of cases across the country. Mm -hmm. um, I do think you know, just by virtue of hiring private counsel, because there'll be that much more time put in on a case that you're going to get a better result. Um, you know, there's, you know, I win cases, I lose cases, you hate losing. Um, but, you know, looking, looking back, you know, I, when you, when you, take a case out of the political realm. I mean, I think if cases in the political realm are completely just an abuse right. of the whole system. Right. Um, and they're used as a weapon. And, they, and I think that's very wrong. But outside of that, generally speaking, the, the courts, and they're, they're far from perfect, but um, generally speaking, I mean, they do a pretty good job. Oh, uh, Lynn, yeah. there's a commercial out there that says, I forgot with the, what's his name, uh, Morgan, uh, that says a pretty good isn't good enough, especially when you're talking about people's lives, man. That sounds like pretty good just is not good enough. And this is where I'm going. Well, a couple of things. Uh, you mentioned the 
uh, inadequacy of public defenders and their workloads. And so, once again, you have to keep in mind, I'm just an analytical corporate engineer type. So as soon as I hear that, I'm like, why don't we fix that? Because that can lead to someone being on death row who shouldn't be on death row. And it seems like uh, there's just an acceptance of that's the way it is. And and uh, I just think about I just think about the poor person sitting in prison for something they didn't do and they're on death row. And it's just hopeless. And and I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't like the idea of our government ever putting an innocent person to death or putting them in prison for the life or whatever. And I suspect, Lynn, that that happens a lot. And I suspect there's some things we can do about it. So you don't have to comment on that one. And the other one, uh, the political nature of some of these trials. Once again, and my friend, like you mentioned, he seems to talk, that's just the way it is. And so that's nothing we can do about it. And I'm like, wow, it seems like we can do something about those type of things. So you don't even have to comment on that. But it just because I live around people who are impacted by those seemingly little small glitches in the system and things like that. And I don't like the fact that people who are part of the system accept those type of things, you know, that we, we, we could do some things about it. So you don't have to comment on that. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit more specific. Uh, you're familiar with the Innocent Project, right? Uh, Sheck and Neufeld and, and when they started using DNA uh, to show that quite a few people on death row and who's been convicted in life sentences, they were actually innocent. Is there any concern about that? Or is there any anybody in the criminal justice system say we need to do something about this? Or once again, is it just accept an attitude of uh, ain't nothing we can do about it? So we might as well accept it. You know, I guess I have, I guess I view the criminal justice system more through my lens and my experiences in my cases. And I guess I tend to, I don't have, I haven't experienced, you know, an, an innocent person being sentenced to death row. And um, so I guess my commentary comes from my personal experience and I think avoiding in my cases, the problems that you're talking about. Um, on a personal level, level, I've been able to, I think, <clears throat> avoid all those issues. Um, so to comment on the criminal justice system, you know, on a broader level, um, Minnesota doesn't have the death penalty. So um, I guess, I haven't had to live with that and those types of errors. Um, certainly something can be done about everything. And I don't think, you know, my belief, I don't, I don't, I don't tend to believe that people just think, well, there's, it's fine. You know, our mistakes are fine and, and there's nothing we can do about it. I, I think there's always something that can be done about any issue. And I certainly support that. And maybe it's because I'm a non-lawyer, but as soon as I started reading about the Innocent Project, I'm like, this is a shame. Somebody need to do something about this. A uh, couple other things. And I told you, this is, and based on my reading, uh, I think the unreliability of eyewitness testimony, we all know the flaws in that, but it doesn't seem like we're doing anything about it. The reliance on jailhouse confessions where this guy come in and strike a deal to rat on his cellmate. We all know there's a problem with issue with that. Uh, the uh, forced confessions. We all know there's an issue with that. So I'm looking at all these things and I'm like, why are the people 
in charge of the criminal justice system doing something about it. And once again, and going back to what I uh, originally uh, opened up with, that was my disappointment in his comment. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, you know the problems there. There's something can be done about it. And I'm saying that because I personally know people who have told me, and I have no reason to not believe them, how they was convicted. And I had people on death row uh, who didn't do it. And they told me, explained how it was done. And there's a lot of subtlety there. And I'm going to get off this subject, but it is a pet peeve of mine. And then you com compound that with the whole appeal process. Because once you're found guilty, I mean, it's almost impossible to undo it. And we have cases out there where DNA has actually proved the person didn't do it. And the DA still didn't want to let them out. So those are the type of issues that I'm looking at. And I'm just wondering why is it that people who are part of the system, who are in charge of the system, do not do anything about that. And to me, that has nothing to do with your political philosophy or anything. That just has to do with, look, we need to make sure when we're dealing with people's lives that yeah. we, do, we are doing the best we can. And when we find areas where there are issues, we need to do something about it. And, and it just seems like to me there's kind of a laissez-faire type of an approach to these issues, and they keep going on. And once again, I meet and talk to people who've been impacted by that unfairly. So anyway, yeah. I'll get off that soapbox, and we'll talk some more about that. But I'm just disappointed in the whole criminal justice system. And, and whenever you see a verdict that is suspicious, everyone associated with the system, that they have a common message, it works. And, but you talk to the people who've been in it, and they might have a different viewpoint. Okay, good. Uh, let's talk a little. Oh, other other thing is juries, and you can come back to me on this one. Uh, I I can't think of a better system than a jury system, but it's kind of like democracy. Sometimes I can't think of anything better, but sometimes it can scare the heck out of you uh, because of the biases and the way attorneys can play to people's emotions and things like that. Uh, what are there any changes we and I think I even know the answer to that do we need to make any changes to the jury system you know the the right to a jury trial is just so valuable um, you know the, the players players in the in the court system you know, are the judges and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys. And um, juries are, are so important because they come in and they're fresh. And we're supposed to have 12 jurors. And, um, you know, they in misdemeanors, they've reduced that amount to six, essentially to save time and money. Mm -hmm. And um, a huge issue in the criminal justice system is um, there's a constant pressure you know to get things done as fast as, as possible and i think criminal defense attorneys are constantly trying to slow things down um, because when you move things fast people aren't treat, treated fairly and so there's this constant battle but in any event you know judges and lawyers who have been practicing for a while they i think they get real hardened and very jaded and they don't believe anything anybody says so the jury system is hugely important because they come in, they're kind of fresh, you know, they all have their biases, but they're, you know, at least they're fresh to the whole system. They're told kind of the, you know, the, the presumption of innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt. And the, I think the system is set up so that if, if, you know, the rules were followed and the Bill of Rights was followed, we would get a, a, the, the right result. The problem is, is that we have imperfect actors um, carrying out the system. And, you know, everybody, you know, some people don't have pure motives. And, um, and then they have their own biases. Everybody, everybody's biased. It's just how much and against mm -hmm. whom. And, um, and we have to, you know, we have to work to eliminate those. Um, but, you know, I don't think you can really, you know, a lot of countries don't have the jury system. 
there there isn't anything better i don't think you certainly don't ever want to any judge or judges deciding deciding your fate well, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I can't think of anything better, but like I say, it scares the heck out of me if I'm innocent. Now, if I'm guilty, I I, I don't mind rolling the dice uh, with the jury system. Uh, okay, so we've talked about your clientele. We talked about court procedures, and we talked about reform. Uh, so we are stepping to the, through the process. So now, uh, I've been convicted whether justly or unjustly, we won't even get into that. But I'm sitting in a prison somewhere, and geez, Lynn, and maybe you're maybe you you want to stay in your lane. But when you hear some of the stories in these prisons, and when I hear, well, I understand that uh, most of these people are going to be let out back out on the street again, and it just seems to me like we are. Uh, cre either creating, we're cre no, we're creating hardened criminals in prison. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Because no. it, it, it's, it, it's some, it's some very horrible things. The prison culture is very horrible. Yeah. And explain. Well, let's come at it this way. Explain to me why no one seemed to care. Uh, nothing is being done about that. You know, my impression, I haven't spent a lot of time in prison, and actually the guys who go to prison don't say a whole lot mm -hmm. um, about, you know, my impression is that prison is hell. Um, you know, I've done, I've been, you know, I visited the Hennepin County Workhouse, I visited Stillwater, I visited Oak Park Heights. <clears throat> and, um, you know, usually there's just nonstop screaming, just screaming, people are just screaming. It's just, I mean, I don't know, how, you know, I had to do an interview just around screaming for two or three hours one day and um, don't ever want to experience that, but, you know, I've always, my, the thing that highlights in my mind is that um, I think inmates need to be protected more from other inmates. Yes. And um, I don't have the answer to that today. Um, you know, I think, you know, solitary confinement drives people crazy and I think the position of the government has been um, that, you know, it, it would be exorbitantly expensive to try and separate them so they can't hurt each other. So um, right. I don't know what the exact answer is to that problem at this point, but yeah. I do think that they need protection from each other. Yeah, uh, some of the things that come to my mind is that because uh, there's a lot of gangs there and things like that, there's rape, there's murders, there's assault, all that's going on. And I find it hard to believe that we can't come up with a process, a system or organization uh, to uh, drastically re re reduce that, uh, what's going on there. Uh, and in this age of modern technology where what well, i mean of course a guy that's already in prison for life he doesn't care that you catch him doing something anyway what more can you do to him uh but there gotta be some ways that we can do this and and, and this is my main not only for the uh safety of our society when they get back out but for them as human beings and we're almost uh dehumanizing these people and just just turning them, in, like I say, into worse criminals, and then we letting them back out on the street. And it's almost like uh, recycling uh, within the criminal justice system. And once again, and this is nothing personal, but I just have to be, look, it just disappoints me that no one associated with that seemed to care enough to do something about it. 
And I do know people who've been in there, and I've heard these stories. And it is uh, every time I hear them, I'm like, this is crazy. This is so inhumane. And once again, you're going to let these people back out on the street, and they're going to be more dehumanized. Uh, they're not going to have any skills of trade. They're not going to be able to get a job. They, they're not going to be able to get a housing in a lot of cases. And we turn them back out on the streets. And to be honest with you, we move on to the next subject. It just does not make any sense to me, Lynn. But evidently, it makes sense to the people who's in charge of these things or who I, I, I just can't understand. So let's, let's move on uh, to a couple of other uh, subject areas. So there's been st stories uh, recently of uh, DAs letting criminals go, letting them out, not charging them, by the way, not charging the criminals. And, and by the way, uh, it, it, the intriguing part of it is is that these would be some of the people, some of the people that they're letting out are the type of people that you probably would represent, I'm assuming. And correct me if I'm wrong on that particular one, Lynn. But they're letting, uh, the DAs are letting them out, not charging them uh, for any violence. Uh, we have uh, people whose job is to donate money uh, to get criminals out, uh, out on bail, no matter what, how horrific uh, the crime is. And to be honest with you, a lot of these people are into the whole protest uh, movement that's going around. Uh, is that a discussion among your profession? Or how, how do you feel about uh, just bailing out and I don't mean to put you on the spot, uh, just bailing out these criminals and having bail money, and we don't care whether they're guilty or not. We want them to get them out of jail and so they can go out and do some protests. And, 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 and before you answer that, I think, once again, that's part of the whole chess game that I've referred to earlier. Do you have a, a position on the issue of uh, uh, bailing out uh, criminals and DAs not charging these people? <clears throat> yes. Um and you know, just to let you, let you know, most most criminal defense attorneys are pretty radically left. So I'm kind of <laughs> kind of ostracized <laughs> in that whole group. So I don't have any professional discussions. With them. <laughs> That's a good point to point out. Okay, yeah, good. Uh -huh. They, don't, they uh -huh. don't talk to me anymore. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, of course, you know, I oppose the writing and, um, yeah, I've been seeing things. I'm a criminal defense attorney and I don't support what they're doing. And, <laughs> and, and it's true. They are, they are not prosecuting and, you know, everything's supposed to be done. The Bible says decently and in order. And, um, you know, we have our, we have we have laws in the books, we have procedures, they're supposed to be followed. And, you know, the legislature has come up with, you know, that, and they're certainly not perfect, but yeah, what they're doing is wrong. I mean, I recently, you know, read a, an article about a, a man had broken into this gal's house, I think in South Minneapolis, they had him on video. And I, I think she confronted him, you know, before he took something and then he didn't injure her and then the Hennepin County Attorney's Office didn't prosecute him, burglary. And that's, you know, up until now, that is an automatic prison. You burglarize a residence, that is prison, minimum. And then there was some backlash, I think, in the media and then they have prosecuted him and then the, the Hennepin County Attorney said, you know, well, he didn't steal anything and he didn't hurt anybody, so we weren't going to charge him. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm kind of shocked at the deals that are being made and um, yeah. yeah, it's a, they are not prosecuting. They're, they're letting people out and it's really kind of shocking. And then these people get out and they commit crimes they kill people, carjack and everything else. And, 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 and the sad part about that is that most Americans aren't aware of this. Well, at least half the country isn't because it's never reported anywhere. And I'm really concerned about it. And once again, uh, there's a 
chess game going on here. And the strategy had been laid out for decades. And I think I'm afraid that before most of us realize what's going on, it's going to be too late. And uh, that there's people using a lot of communities and things for their own purposes. And those, yeah. com those communities are not aware that they're being used for some type of global chess game. And uh, I just yeah. have some personal stake uh, in that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, selective prosecution, which you hit on earlier. And we could, we could uh, replace the word selective with political and still achieve the same thing because for those of us and I'm going to just go say, for those of us who are in the know, we know that there are, what's going on here is a lot of selective prosecution and that uh, it helps your uh, political persuasion or philosophy uh, has a lot to do with whether or not you're prosecuted. Uh, now, I'm quite sure, given that you are almost an outcast among uh, criminal defense attorneys, but is there any discussion at all about this elective prosecution uh, among you and the few people you do have uh, who look at this issue and concerned about it? And what can be done about it, if anything? Are you, are you referring to things like against Justice Kavanaugh or President Trump? Well, yeah, and that's a good question. Uh, I'm referring to the fact that a lot of, going back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of people who were guilty of some of the most horrendous, horrendous crimes here recently in the Twin Cities across the country, uh, they're not being prosecuted. Uh, they're being bailed out. And then if you're of the wrong persuasion, you can expect the full extent of the law to come down on you. That's what... Mm -hmm. Oh, um, you weren't referring to. Okay. <laughs> does, that make, does that make sense, Leanne? If it doesn't, tell me. A little bit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and once again, I, 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 I don't yeah. like to get into hot button emotional issues too much, but sometimes you can't avoid them. Uh, so, yeah, so there are certain people who are out there, uh, well, I mean, let's face it, there, I mean, I just read where someone, uh, who was at the Capitol on Jan January 6th oh, yeah. and didn't hardly do anything, got eight months. And I do know, and I'm familiar with what's, what's going on out in Portland and Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, that nobody, uh, not only was no one ever prosecuted, uh, no one was ever charged and a lot of them was bailed out and got out and committed other crimes. So that's the type of thing uh, that I'm talking about. Okay. Well, <clears throat> you know, the, the justice system is set up, so it's not supposed to be handled improperly the way that it's, you know, been currently being handled. Yeah. And the problem is is just simply who's who's running those offices. Um, who are the prosecutors? Um, it's who's in power. So um, I've been, you know, I've been working a decade. You know, I'm church going gal. I've been trying to get Christians. I, you know, I think if, you know, people are taught the right values, Judeo-Christian values, um, and they live according to that, that makes about 98% of your problems go away. Right. And if we can get people in the church and involve, you know, live a godly lifestyle, all these problems, you know, are, you know, going to go away pretty much. <clears throat> and, um, but right now the people who are running prosecutorial offices are in, are kind of radically left. And that's why they aren't getting prosecuted in Portland or in Minneapolis. Okay. And um, the only remedy Let's is to get car. different people <clears throat> in the offices, in, in the Department of Transportation, in the Department of Health, in the Hennepin County, you know, 
um, county attorney's office. So we didn't get a chance to talk about, I'm trying to start wrapping things up here about the war on drugs and its impact on certain communities and its impact on law enforcement and things like that. Uh, And where it fits in as far as philosophy is concerned, because I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, the father of modern conservatism, Bill Buckley, was actually libertarian, that perhaps the most admired economist uh, that I know about, and I don't know that many, Milton Freeman uh, was a libertarian because they saw the potential danger of that. So uh, we're not going to get into that. So Lynn, uh, we've talked quite a few issues here. I know you are a passionate person about some of these issues. Uh, What are some of your future plans what are some of the issues that you see out there that's going to impact your future plans? And what are those plans? Well, um, currently I'm running for Minnesota attorney general. And as I think I mentioned earlier, you know, I've been, I've been representing my clients rights for 30 years. And now I'd like to represent the rights of the um, good people of the state of Minnesota. Um, the, essentially, you know, the, our whole Republic and the American dream seems to be under attack right now, um, by what I call the radical left. And, um, I see the, the use of the COVID is, you know, the COVID issue is kind of achieving some really destructive ends. Um, it's destroying businesses. It's destroying destroying land ownership, the right to work, um, freedom against you know mandatory masks or mandatory vaccines. Um, so uh, you know, and <clears throat> I I would want to bring suit, you know, if elected to Attorney General, to strike down the executive orders of Governor Waltz. Um, including the ability, I mean, that whole legislation needs to be struck down. Our our government was set up to have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and and not have one person issuing edicts for the entire population of the state of Minnesota. It's contrary to our form of government. And, you know, and they've been, one, they're unnecessary, um, the statistics show that if you even if you get COVID, you have a 99.997 chance, percent chance of surviving COVID. And the courts have typically required evidence before you issue orders like this. And there hasn't been an, an evidentiary hearing in the legislature or in any court that I'm aware of establishing the, the un, lack of need for these orders regarding COVID. But so, you know, it's, I, I would, you know, I would want to protect, you know, business owners, citizens, freedom of choice, um, strike down his orders. You know, I oppose the attorney general suing businesses um, and fines for allegations that they violated, you know, Governor Waltz's orders. You know, I also want to protect, you know, the second amendment I want to protect the right, you know, our rights to vote and, um, you know, bottom line, just um, remove Keith Ellison from government. Okay. Well, before we leave, and I I got a minute or so here, if my producer let me do this, uh, just uh, a few suggestions on uh, reforming the system. Uh, For jailhouse confession, and they do it otherwise, make sure. Have have the guy wear a wire and get a recording of the actual confession instead of taking the man's word for it. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, time when in the Amer- average uh, citizen find it hard to believe that anyone could, would confess to a murder, a, a crime they didn't uh, commit. But we know that happens, and it probably happens a lot more frequently than anyone wants to admit. Make sure they videotape all of these uh, confessions and interview and have some type of professional standards 
uh, there. And I know there's a resource challenge. And these are just some of the things that on the outside looking in, I'm not a lawyer, stuff like that, uh, that I think, uh, like in some other countries, appeal courts do allow you to present uh, new evidence uh, 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 when you do the appeal. Here in America, it's hard to go that route there. You, you can't do that. You got to argue on some type of legal technicalities in the, on appeal and new evidence is, is not counted. And we got to do something about, I think there should be some serious punishment uh, when you find a DA or someone in the system abusing it and unjustly sending people to uh, prison or jail and they don't deserve it. So those are just some of the things that I have thought about uh, based upon my reading and understanding of how the system works. Uh, so once again, Lynn, really appreciate this. Uh, as I tell everyone, I think you're here locally, we'll have to get together for some coffee or something and just uh, talk a little bit more in detail off the record about some things uh, sometime between now and the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, good good yeah. luck on all your future uh, endeavors. And I'll say to you and I say to our audience out there that we need great defense attorneys. I think our the framers of the Constitution spent a lot of time worried about the power of the government to prosecute people with all their power and all their resources against this one little person. And uh, to be honest with you, and I'll end it saying with this, I think every defendant should have a dream team defending them uh, to really uh, make the government earn uh, their uh, verdicts. And right now, I don't think in a lot of cases they're really earning it. It's just on automatic pilot. And a lot of people suffering, a lot of people that I know in certain communities are suffering from it. So thank you very much. Let's keep fighting. Uh, let's keep letting people know that the beauty of, one of the beauties of this country is our laws and our constitution. And rather throw that out and throw out capitalism and all of that stuff that we all need to come together and uh, keep uh, working to improve it. So, Lynn, you have a good evening. This has been more than a joy, and I look forward to talking to you the next time and having a cup of coffee with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.